welcome to Crofting Matters, topical discussions on crofting throughout the year. My name is Siobhan MacDonald for the Farm Advisory Service. Coming up in this episode, we talk about crofting regulation, when it will affect you, some of the quirks and things to know about. I'm joined today by Graham Fraser, who has many, many years of experience in crofting and agriculture and is widely respected for his understanding of crofting regulation. Graham, I'm not sure if I'd want to listen to a podcast on crofting regulations, but I know that people can get caught out and sometimes simple things take a while to unravel and fix. What do you find are the most common problems? Well, uh, thanks for making me sound so old, Siobhan, for many, <laughs> many years. I would say uh, a lot of the time it can relate to historic decroftings, perhaps when the area was decrofted prior to any construction starting. Same can apply with resumptions, and resumptions are just uh, another method of taking land out of crofting via the Scottish Land Court rather than via the Crofting Commission. Often these decrofted areas, when they actually came to start building the house, the builder maybe recommended turning the house through 30 degrees and maybe moving it five meters this way or whatever, just to, to make it make it slightly better. And it means the bits of the, the house and garden site often stick out with what the area that was actually decrofted. So. So that's, that's a very common one. And that also can mean there's been bits of the croft taken out of crofting that didn't need to be, but there's no way to add, or it's very, very uh, difficult to add those back to the croft. But if there have been bits missed, then it may be that uh, a bank or a lender going to give you a mortgage will, will insist upon the missing bits being decrofted as a, as a new application to, to decroft that land to, to just get it all correctly decrofted matching the, the boundaries of the of the house. Yeah. Graham, how would somebody know if their decrofting area matched their title deeds? How do you find that out? If you don't have a copy of the decrofting order, you can go on to the, the Register of Crofts and any decroftings issued since 1976 are on the register and downloadable as a PDF. And you can then check the map against uh, any maps you have of your title deed. But a word of warning would be that those maps with some of those old decrofting orders are not particularly great. Uh, they don't, they aren't particularly at a good uh, scale or particularly accurate. So it can be difficult. Your advisors can get hold of, uh, if it's not a registered croft on the new register, they can get hold of a shapefile for, that defines the area that was decrofted from the Crofting Commission to import into our mapping programmes and, and can then perhaps be, do a better comparison of, of what the Commission say has been decrofted with, with what your title deeds say. Another term that I hear quite often uh, that confuses people is deemed crofts. What on earth is a deemed croft? Well, we come across that very regularly here in Shetland because there are a lot of owner-occupied crofts. And if somebody had bought their croft in the past and then subsequently took in an apportionment, they haven't bought the solum or soil of the apportionment along with their croft. So if they don't own the solum, they are in law deemed to be a tenant of that croft. And that croft has to then be put on the register as a separate deemed croft of which they are tenant, as opposed to being owner-occupier of their, their in-buy land. You find that there are quite a few deemed crofts already on the register, 
but there are also quite a few apportionments that should be deemed cross but are not on the old register of crofts at the moment and it's only when you come to do a transfer of, of a croft and its associated apportionment that the commission will add it to the register as a deemed croft. And do you have to be an owner-occupier to end up with a deemed croft? There are a few other ways that an apportionment could get detached from its croft, but normally it would be associated with a croft that had been purchased, would be the vast majority of deemed crofts. Something that I've found quite a lot on the West Coast is the same thing, and it's where a croft has changed hands, but the grazing share hasn't. So the croft has been sold. Grazing share, of course, was tenanted, and that tenancy hasn't been transferred at the time. And they've got quite a lot of people who are experiencing that problem, and then it's a real struggle to try and get the grazing share back again. Yeah, the, the grazing share in itself uh, uh, can be a deemed croft in that circumstance, or any subsequent apportionment taken in in relation to that share that was detached from its croft would be a deemed croft as well. That can be a bit of a problem. Uh, when you come to register that, the map that's required for that deemed croft share is a map of the common grazing that it relates to and just a, a cross or a circle drawn in the approximate part of the, the common grazing, the appropriate scattled, if there's more than one scattled, to show where that share is located is, is what's needed for registration. Do you find you have problems with people who unwittingly become landlords of vacant crofts? Because we have more owner-owned land, owned croft land here in Shetland, we probably have more areas where folk are deemed to be landlords of, of a vacant croft. It can come about for a few reasons. You know, I've had ones in the past where a decision was made to purchase the croft from the landlord, but rather than take title in the tenant's name, he put title into his son's name and he remained his son's tenant. Of course, when he passed away, the, the tenancy came to an end. The son couldn't succeed to the tenancy because he was the landlord. So he ended up being landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy. There are other ones where maybe within you buy their croft off the landlord and then subsequently uh, let it to another family member. And for one reason or another, at some point, the family member relinquishes their tenancy. And again, that leaves the owner as landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy. So, so there are a few ways it can come about. The commission don't have a problem if that person is still making use of the croft and uh, not neglecting it. They can carry on working it as normal. The main significant effect it has is landlords of a croft with a vacant tenancy are not eligible for the crofting grants, whereas owner-occupiers get the same grants as tenants of, of registered crofts. Landlords of a vacant croft, that's come about because crofts should always be tenanted. That's what's in the legislation. When the initial crofting acts were drawn up, then all land that went on the register had a tenant. Anything that was owned, folk would have probably not seen themselves as crofters at that point, so the land wouldn't have been added to the register. So the crofting acts tend to assume that crofts are tenanted. We've moved ahead now, and when the right to buy came in, then they, you ended up with folk who were, were owners. But until more recent acts, there was no legal definition as to what was an owner-occupier. It's only some of the recent crofting acts that defined that. And under the Acts, an owner-occupier is someone who was tenant at the time when they purchased the croft from their landlord, or their heirs and successors, 
or anyone that they or their heirs and successors sell that croft onto, plus their heirs and successors. And if a croft was let out after it was purchased, and then that tenancy was relinquished, then that's the sort of situation that, that leaves somebody as landlord of a croft with a vacant tenancy. The, the legislation has also now made owner-occupiers uh, eligible for all the same grants as the, the tenants can qualify for under the, the crofting agricultural grant scheme, etc. But landlords of a croft with a vacant tenancy do not qualify for the crofting grants. So the, the crofting commission, as long as the, the people are still making use of their croft and not neglecting the croft, the crofting commission aren't going to have any problem. They're not going to come in and say, you've got to let this croft out or, or transfer it to someone else they're just not going to get the crofting grants that the, the tenants and owner-occupiers qualify for. Something else that causes confusion is the term testate and intestate succession. Often a, a method of confusion. Testate succession is where there is a will that specifically covers the tenancy of the croft. So the will said the tenancy of such and such a croft was to go to so-and-so. So that would be testate succession. That's usually expected to be the transfer to happen and the commission to be notified, well, the landlord to be notified and a copy to the commission within 12 months of the death of the original tenant. Intestate succession is where there is no will or if there is a will, but the will doesn't specifically cover the succession to the tenancy of the cross. And that can take a little bit more sorting out. It's really the executor has to do a transfer by intestate succession to the, the appropriate uh, new tenant. And for that, there is a 24-month period to notify the landlord and the Crofting Commission of the succession to the tenancy. You've said a few times the Register of Crofts and Crofting Register. What's the difference? Well, the Register of Crofts is the original register, which is held by the Crofting Commission. It's not map-based, and it can be accessed from the Crofting Commission website, from their homepage. There's a search the, the Register of Crofts option, and you can go in there and you can search based on a croft name, croft registration number, tenant or owner-occupier's name, landlord's name, and you can find the appropriate crofts. You might find a list of crofts under some circumstances, but you'd have to then try and narrow it down to the right croft. Need to watch the spelling of your croft name because sometimes what uh, the crofters think is the correct spelling for the croft doesn't match necessarily what the crofting commission have on the register of crofts. So that's when you might be better searching on the individual's name. The crofting register is the new map-based register, and that is held by Land Registers of Scotland. Now, while all crofts should be on the old register of crofts then only those that have had a, a trigger event or someone has chosen to register voluntarily will be on the crofting register. So there's probably at the moment only a quarter to a third of the, all the crofts on the new map-based crofting register. And you can go via the Land Registers of Scotland website into a search option on that register as well. When you say trigger events, what are trigger events? Why have some people registered and some not? There's a list of so-called trigger events, such as uh, an assignation, a letting, succession to a croft tenancy, decrofting, resumptions, various things like that that require the croft to be registered before 
that proposal can be approved. There are a few other things that uh, don't trigger registration, such as subletting or short-term letting. They can be approved by the Crofting Commission without the croft having to be placed on the new map-based register. But it's usually trigger events that are leading to um, crofts being added to the, the crofting register, although there are a few people who have chosen to do it on a voluntary basis. And what do you need to do? How do you get on the crofting register? There's a form to fill out, a form if it's an unregistered croft, a form A, first time registration. You need to give all the details of who's the tenant if there is one, who's the owner occupier if there is one, details of a landlord if there is a landlord. You have to provide a suitable map that defines the boundaries of the croft and any associated apportionments. You have to provide certain evidence, such as decroftings that have occurred in the last 20 years. You need to apply a copy of that order. All apportionment orders, you need to put in a copy of the order with, with the registration. You need to provide a list of the names and addresses of anybody that borders with the land that you're registering, be that a neighbouring croft or be it just a house site that, that happens to share a boundary with your croft. And you submit all that to the Crofting Commission along with a fee for £90. And the Crofting Commission will check it all over if they're happy that the form's been completed correctly and that the map is suitable uh, and looks accurate, then they will pass it to the Register of Scotland to get that croft added to the new crofting register. What happens if a boundary is wrong or say a neighbour of yours has registered their croft and you don't agree with the boundary or even if you register your own and you're not sure of the boundary? You have to try and be as sure as you can be before you submit it if it's your own croft you're registering. It's always worth checking the, the crofting register to see if your neighbours have, have registered their boundaries and to make sure you don't clash with that. As a neighbour, you should have been informed that they had registered their croft and ideally would have checked it at the time. We always recommend with somebody who is re registering their croft for the first time that they go to their neighbours and show them the map out of courtesy in a way, and just to make sure there aren't any issues that might crop up later. There is a nine-month challenge period after a croft has been registered. It's difficult to know how what that really means in law, because in reality, if you think he's registered something wrong, your first step should be to go and point that out and, and discuss that with your neighbour. And if the neighbour agrees, oh yes, I've just made a mistake there, you're right, I should have followed this line rather than that line, then he can submit a rectification form with a revised map explaining what led to the mistake and asking for the, the registration to be corrected. There's no fee for that. It should be reasonably straightforward. If you think he's got it wrong, but he thinks he's got it right, my understanding is your only recourse is to go to the land court to get it decided, which uh, is never, never the most desirable route to have to go down. And and I'm I, you know I'm not sure how final the, the nine month cutoff is if somebody only spots a mistake ten twelve months on I, I don't think that necessarily stops them from going to the land court. Yeah, sometimes it's really difficult because some of the descriptions of croft boundaries that I've seen I've seen one that said third stone to the left <laughs> it makes it impossible to decide where the boundary really is now common phrase in a lot of the title deeds or dispositions, as they, they tend to be called, uh, that I've seen is lands pertaining to the croft of such and such, and there's not even an, an attempt to define it at all. So, yeah, it can be difficult. For somebody who's assigning their croft, 
they want to pass the tenancy of their croft on to another person. What steps do they need to take? You said that was a trigger event. What do I need to do? Well, you would complete the assignation proposal form with your details and the, the details of the of the new tenant. Agents can actually do that online now if you're using an agent to do it for you. You would normally submit that along with the registration form and the map of the croft. And on the registration form, you would cite in the box where it asks for reason for registration, you would cite the proposed assignation as the trigger event on that form A. So everything would go off ideally in one envelope together to the Crofting Commission, the form A to register the Croft, the map and all the supporting documents uh, along with the assignation form with your proposed assignation details. Is it worth registering your Croft now just in case you make a change in future? Why register it or not? Um, I don't tend to advocate voluntary registration as a matter of course. I mean, somebody might choose to do that just because they want to be sure that they've defined all their boundaries. There's one or two exceptions to that. If, if If there's, say, a family member's planning to build a house on the croft and there's a house and garden ground to be decrofted, uh, in the near future, maybe next next year or whatever, then you might choose to voluntary register the croft so that there is, at least you've got one potential delay out of the system before you actually apply to decroft because you can't apply to decroft until you've at least uh, submitted uh, a planning application and you have a planning reference number. Or if you do, the commission will just sit on it until you do have that planning reference number. So. So nothing will happen in terms of decrofting until until you're at least ready to go down the planning route. That's quite advanced. And usually by the time you are applying for planning, you may probably already discuss matters with your mortgage lender, your bank or whatever, and your builder is lined up and you're wanting things to start just as soon as the decrofting goes through. And the last thing you want then is a delay in the decrofting because you're waiting for the the Croft registration to go through. So although it costs an extra £90 because you will pay £90 when you voluntary choose to voluntary register the Croft and then you'll pay £90 to update the register when the, the decrofting is approved, whereas if you put them in together citing the decrofting as a trigger event, it would only be £190 to get to that stage. In the scale of the cost of building a house, what's £90? So I would say go ahead and do a voluntary registration right away and then that's one thing out of the way when you then come to to decroft the house site next year or whenever. The only other time I probably would say worth going for uh, voluntary registration is where you maybe occupy several crofts, several adjacent crofts, and they've been worked together that long that the boundaries between the crofts are very vague you, you might not actually be that sure of where the divisions fall. And it might be the, the older generation, if they're still around, who could keep you right and tell you where the, the divisions should be. And it might be worth going ahead and doing voluntary registrations at that point where they're still around to keep you right. If it goes down a couple of generations, then they probably don't have a clue where the, where the boundaries actually lie between the cross. At least do the mapping in that circumstance. You don't necessarily have to do the formal registration, but if you've at least done the mapping and defined the boundaries of each croft, then it won't be an issue to that will cause problems to sort out later on. 
would you advise folk to make a will and do the crofting register as well? I would certainly say, particularly if you're a tenant of a croft or several crofts, then worth having a will and making sure not only that you have a will, but in that will, the tenancy of the croft is specifically covered so that you say, I wish the, the tenancy of croft such and such to go to so and so. That will always make succession to a tenancy much more straightforward. I still wouldn't say it's necessary to go ahead and do a voluntary registration at that point, but it might be worth made sure that you knew exactly where the boundaries of the croft lie uh, so that when the person does come to um, notify the, the commission of the succession, then they will very easily then also be able to register the croft. And worth noting too that you can only have one tenant. You can't have a joint tenancy. You can only have one tenant. Yes. More than one person can be joint owner-occupier of a croft. Only one person can be tenant. Just to conclude, Graham, what would be your top tips for crofters to be organised and have everything as correct as possible? Number one would be to, to have a will that specifically covers the crofts, be it the owner-occupancy or the tenancy of the crofts, and to who is to succeed to those crofts. That would make life an awful lot easier for everyone in the long term if everybody had a, an appropriate will. In terms of house sites and decroftings, it's definitely worth checking up to see if your title on the area that's been decrofted match up, because they very often don't. And it only comes to light when a house perhaps goes on the market to be sold and then the solicitors for the buyer pick up the decrofting doesn't match properly and that can delay or lose a potential sale. So that would be another one I would definitely say folk need to check up on. Thirdly, possibly checking up on whether you have any deemed crofts that are still in tenancy. Because very often um, I, in the past, I've seen cases where an owner-occupied croft changed hands and everybody assumed the apportionment went with it. But 20, 30, 40 years later, something crops up. Um, we realise that the apportionment was a Dean croft and is still in the name of the deceased as tenant. And they may have died 40 years ago and their executor may have died 30 years ago and that causes no end of problems to get that sorted out. So check that you either, uh, if you own your croft, that you either own the solum of the apportionment along with the croft, or if it's a deemed croft that's still held in tenancy, that that is, again, covered by your will as to who that, that who should succeed to that tenancy. I should also say that under the Farm Advisory Service, there's a new specialist plan which is fully funded and you can work with your advisor to find out the status of your croft and whether there's anything you need to do. Yeah, and, and make a start on any registrations that are thought to be required uh, sooner rather than later. Well, thank you very much, Graham. We've got more explanations of complicated crofting terms on the website. There's a few cartoons that explain subletting and letting and decrofting which are quite easy to follow. Thank you very much for translating some of that crofting jargon into English. Thank you for listening to Crofting Matters. If you enjoyed this, 
try Stock Talk, which is a monthly podcast all on livestock, or Rural Roundup and Thrill of the Hill. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.